What does a reversal, when something's changed, reversed, feel like? Like, what does it feel like when something that is or was is no more, is no longer? Does it maybe feel like escape, like, like in a movie, like you're in a car chase, where you're in the passenger seat and, and your car runs headlong into your mortal enemy and the driver of the car, which isn't you, slams on the brakes and then throws the car into reverse so you can escape and then you do. What does it feel like? Or, or maybe like when you're having this dream and in the dream you do something that can't be undone. And you're caught up in that, even in your dream, with the guilt and the shame of what you just did. And then you wake up. And you realize reversal has occurred. What does that feel like? What does it sound like? Does it sound like the beep, right? Beep, beep, beep. You know what I'm talking about, right? When a car or a van or a truck backs up, Reverses? Does reversal sound like that? Or, or maybe like the, the squiggle of a videotape, like reversing? What does it sound like when something, when there's something that's, that, 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 that you never thought was believable becomes believable? Like reversal, it happens. You can't believe it. Is it songs of adoration? Joy, tales that you tell of the unbelievable. Is that what it sounds like? I've been using this medication recently, meloxicam. I can't stop talking about it. My doc gave it to me three weeks ago. I, I take this 15 milligram tablet for pain in my knees. And like two weeks ago, I started to notice that I can walk and not hurt. I could walk 18 holes, and it doesn't hurt my, my knee. I also noticed that the tennis elbow that's been in this elbow for like the last two years was gone. Is that what rever reversal sounds like? The me telling you this over and over again in wonder. Reversal. What does it look like? Like, like what kinds of things have you seen that reverse the things that were to the things that are. Is it a debt that's forgiven? Like that moment when a church or an entity pays off someone's medical debts? Does it look like that? Or, or, or when someone loses weight and, and you notice, does reversal look like that? Or does it look like someone who had cancer and now they're in remission? What does reversal look like? Like, what do you see when something is reversed and when you are a witness to it, like that, that something that was is no more, something that was not is now, like when you witness it, what does it look like? And then one last question, where do you need reversal? Where do you need to wake up from the dream? You're free. Where do you need to hear the beep, beep, beep? The, the story. 
the scream and exaltation, the tears that it's undone. Where do you in your life need to see it, witness it? I want you to sit there for a second. Maybe even sit there for a second and ask the Lord, where do I need reversal? David Brooks is a New York Times writer, columnist. He discussed this idea of reversal in a recent column. He, he did it through the life of Ernest Hemingway. Brooks describes how Hemingway became, in his latter years, a prisoner of his own celebrity. Hemingway was, right, he was a famous writer by the age of 25, and then he endured middle age. And, and in those middle age years, it was said that he was just simply playing the character of Ernest Hemingway. Now, of course, this is where most of us might roll our eyes and say, few are so, so lucky. It'd be, it'd be nice to be a prisoner to all the praise and adoration instead of maybe being a prisoner to your own demons. But when it comes down to it, Brooks isn't just talking about fame. He's instead talking to, about some sort of like works righteousness. What he means by that is that becoming righteous or noteworthy or well-regarded in light of your work is as damning as having utterly failed. Like being defined by the good work you produced suddenly, Brooks says, mummifies you. Your work becomes this like seedbed for all your deep insecurities. And maybe this morning, that's where some of you need reversal. This is what happened to Hemingway. Now, how did Hemingway find reversal? He, he, he says, Hemingway said it was a process of getting to this place he called getting to zero. He says getting to zero is when an artist, or anyone really, digs through all the sap that gets encrusted around a career or a relationship or a life and retouches that intrinsic impulse that got him to the place in the first place. Like Hemingway's career got encrusted with money, a, a persona, fame. But he found reversal when he got to zero. And in getting to zero, he rediscovered the early work that, that, that made his later life fruitful. Now, let's bring this to the text. We left Elisha and Israel and King Jehoram and the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, where? Last time at a table. Once blinded army, now eyes opened in a camp with this, the people of Samaria, their enemies. And instead of this Syrian army being killed, and they are sent home with like spoils, doggy bags, food, refreshed. We're told in verse 23 that because of this, the raids ceased in Israel and there was peace. Now, but, but one verse later, verse 24, we read that the Syrians and King Ben-Hadad have come to Samaria, sieged it. They're going to war with the king of Israel. Now, let's make sense of this as we begin. The, the previous section saying there was peace is describing the peace from the raids and the attempts of assassination of the king. 
And 24 is most likely seven years later, and it's describing something different. This time, total war. So there is peace from the marauding bandits and uncovering the travel plans of the king of Israel for assassination, but not from war. Now, we aren't told what motivates the king of Syria to invade, but it appears it's linked to verse 25, opportunity. What's the opportunity? There's a great famine in Samaria. And in fact, the famine is so severe that things are not as they should be. In fact, this is the first reversal in our text. And our outline this morning, if you're following at home, is this, reversal number one and reversal number two. The reversal, first reversal then is the word of God is being undone by what? Severe circumstances. What circumstance undoes the word of God for you? Now sit into this for a second. What things cause you to disbelieve God's word, God's promises, God's work? When you doubt that God loves you, when you doubt that God is near to you, when you aren't really sure if God hears your prayers, your cries. Now, empty stomachs might do that. Empty stomachs and the resultant suffering might do it. Like what reverses you from this place of trust to a place of doubt, unbelief? Israel's here. How do we know? Well, first we're told that a donkey's head is sold for 80 shekels. It's a lot of money, 80 pieces of silver for a donkey's head. Why? Because the donkey was unclean for Israel to eat. Under normal circumstances, it would never be eaten by a Jew. But this isn't normal circumstances. It's a time of severe famine. And just as a way of reminder, famine comes with starvation. It comes with people praying for rain, people running up that hill with Kate Bush to find an idol, to make a a deal with God or other gods to fix their hunger to fill their stomachs. Famine meant vigilance, constant vigilance, continual, unending vigilance. Like, like you were vigilant against funguses and weeds and anything that might steal forth fruit from you. You were, you were vigilant against raiders who would steal your harvest and make it their own. You were vigilant against many skirmishes and local wars and burned down fields. It, it meant vigilance against rumors of subjugation and slavery. All that vigilance made for some highly anxious people. And Israel isn't just in famine. They're under siege, which means if there was food lines to Egypt or some territory in the north, With treaties, there might be hope for grain under siege. Those supply lines are cut off. So famine and siege means life and death. Thoughts consumed with, am I going to live? What about my children? So the reversal here is from a place of reversal of peace, feasting, mercy of the previous section 
to famine, and not just famine, the absence of God's word and God's presence. Circumstances have changed, and with a change in those circumstances, so is Israel's heart. Now, this could be ground zero for Israel, like that place of reversal, but quickly we see it isn't at this point. Israel's eating donkey meat, not just donkey meat, but even meat from the head of a donkey. And, if, and, and that meat, that donkey head, it's in heavy demand. Now, probably because of the fact that the law says don't eat donkeys, there might be some donkeys that are left to be eaten. But also because of the head. Now, I know we're in New Mexico, and like there is head meat that lots of people like to eat, but I'm not sure many of us are lining up for donkey head meat and aren't paying 80 shekels of silver for it. But there is so much lack. Why does gold and silver matter if, I, if I'm going to die of hunger? Now, the spiral to ground zero continues. We're told that a dove's dung is selling for five pieces of silver. Now, this could be the pods separated from the dung, or it could be the entire droppings. But again, it's something outside the law of God for the people to consume. It's unclean. To eat these things would have been to be like the other nations. You didn't eat them because you were, as a people, marked by trust in God and his word and the worship of Yahweh and that he would care for you. And so to eat these things would be to mimic other nations. To oftentimes, it was often caught up in roundabout ways in worship of other gods. The next verses drive this point home to its like punctual conclusion. Children are even being sacrificed and eaten. We're told this because a woman appeals to the king. She says she and her neighbor friend had made an agreement in desperation to kill their sons and to eat them. But their friend double-crossed her after sacrificing her own son and them eating him together. The neighbor woman, in turn, hid her son so he couldn't be next. And so this woman seeks out justice from the king who's walking on a wall. This punctuates the point. The reversal from where they were is so profound that in famine, Israel has resorted to child sacrifice and cannibalism. Now, just to make sense about this, child sacrifice was part of worship to Baal. We read about this in various places in the Old Testament, but in Jeremiah 19, 4 and 5, it describes this practice and emphasizes that Israel, God's people, was participating in the practice and that it was detestable to the Lord. Now, if Baal, put this just logically for a second, if Baal is the God of fertility and success, you're in famine. Your family might die. The thinking might have led to twofold reasoning. One, I can appease this God to provide me food and save the rest of my family offering this child and, tragically, awfully, to provide food for a starving household. The spiral is great. It's an undoing. This is emphasizing 
Israel's moral deterioration. It involves compromise related to God's word. It involves, it evolves, that compromise evolves to moral bankruptcy. Israel's king, who would have been Jehoram, seems to be undone by this. We read he, he tears his clothes in lament. We're also told that that tearing reveals sackcloth under his clothes, which means he's already grieving the effects of this famine. He's perhaps like wearing the sackcloth to appeal to either Yahweh or some other god to end it. But what does he say next? May God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. And this connects us to the previous section, right? Israel's king grieved over the state of the nation and the famine and the impending doom of destruction by the siege of the Syrian army. He is politically fragile. He's in this place of incredible impotence. He can't do anything to to relieve this pain, this anxiety, to undo this mess. He's afraid they're going to be overtaken. And so his only thing to do is to lash out and to blame God's prophet, Elisha. Just like the king of Syria in the previous section, who seeks to blame Elisha and kill him, both kings, impotent to do anything about their situation, seek out Elisha. In fact, the king of Israel can't even provide justice or wisdom to this woman, this wicked woman, right? Earlier in Kings, King Solomon provides both justice and wisdom to two women fighting over a son. Whose mother does this son belong to? And so Solomon hears their appeal and says, well, let's cut up one son, knowing that the real mother of the son would rather give up her son and have him live than sacrificing him and having him die. You see, Solomon, in wisdom, averts this wicked mother through his wise judgment. But Jehoram has spiraled and deteriorated to the degree that he has nothing to offer this woman. And rather, he seeks to blame Elisha and God. Notice he says to the woman, to her cry for help in verse 27, If the Lord will not help you, how can I? And adds, After all, there's no grain or wine here. Jehoram knew to say the Lord is the only one that can help her, but he himself is not seeking that Lord, so he has nothing to offer his people but torn clothes, exasperation at the condition of his world and his kingdom. Do we have anything more to offer our world than our exasperation? Do we look at our world and its moral bankruptcy and just offer them that sigh? The woman cries for some sort of bizarre world salvation and the king doesn't know where that salvation is to be found. Now let me add that God has told Israel that this would be her plight. In Deuteronomy 28, listen to this. This is what Moses says to the people on the plains of Moab as they're about to enter the promised land. Because of the suffering of your enemy, your enemy will inflict on you during the siege. You will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and the daughters the Lord your God has given you. 
the most gentle and sensitive woman among you, Moses says, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege and in the distress that your enemy will afflict on you in your cities. Hunger, the threat of death, have undone these women. They have undone Israel. They've undone the king. A great reversal and potential ground zero comes for reversal. But unfortunately, a king is blind. He thinks Elisha's to blame. He, he thinks this is the one place his power might deliver him. If he uses his power to kill Elisha instead of seeing What does reversal look like? Instead of seeing, the king is blind to his own sins, to the promises of God about the repentance of kings. His position towards Elisha from the previous narrative has reversed. In our last section, Jehoram obeys Elisha, doesn't kill the Syrian army, calls Elisha father, but famine and siege by this very same Syrian army, by the way, the same Syrian army that he fed and sent home, causes him to blame Elisha. I think we should be careful before we're so quick to judge. What would you do? This is the first reversal. And so Elisha, the man of God, will show Israel just how far they've slid from Yahweh and his promises. And this leads us to the second reversal. Let's look at verse 32. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent me to take, has sent, uh, to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha's at home with some of the elder statesmen of the son of the prophets. And the king's messenger comes with news. News that Elisha already knows because just like he knew the heart of the Syrian king, Elisha knows the heart of his own king. The messenger has come to Elisha and says with a message, not of salvation, but of death and judgment, thinking it's salvation. How often we mistake the two in our self-righteousness. We think the words of judgment are good news. Elisha bars the door, and there's some wordplay here, but essentially Elisha knows that this man comes bearing with him the king's anxiety and worry, and the king's anxiety is revealed in the message, this famine and siege are from the Lord. Now, he's right, but he's not right in its intent. And so he asks, why should I wait for the Lord any longer. Man, this, this cuts the heart for us, doesn't it? Like, like, what do we do with our anxious hearts when the Lord doesn't answer? 
when he doesn't provide a reversal, a way out. When it seems that our kindness and mercy do nothing but slap us on the back of the head when, he, when we gave it to them. Don't we say, I need to do something about this because God isn't or God won't? We lash out like the king does. This is your fault, God. I don't need this trouble. Now, bound up in this message and the, the message and the messenger is where the reversal will come. We have arrived at Hemingway's ground zero, but, but we do this, don't we, beloved? It's, it's hard to wait on the Lord. Especially when we feel like we're dying. It's hard to wait on the Lord when our bellies are empty. It's hard to wait on the Lord when the world offers us solutions that seem to make sense and seem to deliver us out of our immediate circumstances and problems. Or our own hearts do. Like we look around and we see our neighbors not suffering. We look around and there's some sort of elixir that promises us. There's no more waiting. We too are quick to blame the Lord, his word, others for our lack and our want. The, the message is you are impotent, God. It's why we run to kings and princes. It's why we run to money and prosperity. It's why we run to our work. It's why we run to the next promise of technique or self-help. It's why we run to food and drink or something else that will fill us when we're empty. It's why we run with all our anxieties to our family, our spouse, our boss, our co-worker, our fellow church Christian person to share all the failures of another. The message, the news, the good news we are believing in this moment is like the king and the king's messenger. God, we say, with clenched and shaking fist, you are to blame. And even if you don't say those words, you believe it and you lash out with some sort of fix-it strategy or some sort of relief plan. This is our gospel. What, what gospels do you believe in when you are besieged with panic and worry? What other gospels do you believe will reverse your misfortune and undo your situation? What other gospels do you think will save you? And when you venture out upon them, what does reversal feel like, look like, sound like? Right, in the moment of all our sin, now that sin might not be the cannibalism of these women, but we too sacrifice our children to other gospels. We, we too run to unclean things in the scarcity of our hearts. We too are quick to settle for dung patties, as C.S. Lewis says, because the news of a holiday at sea seems way too hard to believe or way too hard to wait for. I love how Elijah, in the middle of besiegement and famine, is just chilling at his log cabin by the river with the sons of the prophets. When the news of his impending execution comes, do you see how non-anxious he is? I'm not telling you to be like Elijah, but I am saying, notice how quite 
unmoved he is by the news. Even while seemingly facing the same sorts of things Israel and Jehoram is experiencing, there is a peace, a peace that allows him both to hang out, non-anxious, present, maybe even enables him to pray. Have you ever been so like tried by your circumstances that, that being present with another person in a room or present before God in prayer seems to suffocate you? Like you're so undone by what's happening. You're, you're suffocating from that news. Like that news is cutting off the air to your head. You start pacing and panicking. Your thoughts are a million miles from this room and these people. You can't pray because your circumstances are asphyxiating you to the presence and power of God. Have you ever felt the dizzying effects of such a famine to your soul? Elisha isn't undone by this trouble. We read in chapter 7, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of flying flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Tomorrow, at this time, at the city gate. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven... Could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Elisha drops some news of his own. Tomorrow a sea of flour will be sold for one shekel. Two sea of barley will be sold for the same shekel at the city gate. This would be way below even normal asking prices, much less famine ones where donkey's head and dung have skyrocketed. Like, like, how are they going to go from flush, from famine to flush in one day? I mean, even the production of such food would require harvesters, time. But Elisha says within the day. And this is punctuated by the response of the king's messenger, his captain, the hand of the king, the one who executes the king's authority. Again, notice the reversal here. The most powerful man in all the land looks at Elisha and says, even if the Lord should make a window in heaven, this can't be. The scoffing mockery of the powerful. There's no way. Short of manna from heaven, there's no way. And even with manna, I don't believe it. And Elisha retorts, you're going to see what reversal looks like, my friend, but you're not going to taste it. Reversal. The reversal also leads to some new characters. Four lepers at the gates. The lepers at the gates say, why are we just waiting to die? Our, our panhandling and begging aren't even of any use to us anymore. If we sit here and die, we're going to die, we might as well go over to the camp of the Syrians. And maybe they'll spare us and we'll live. So they embark on a, a suicide mission, a, a shot in the dark. They, they rise at sunset and head to the encampment of the Syrians. And when they get there, no one is home. Now we aren't told why yet, but the implication is the lepers are to be witnesses. And this is foreshadowing what's to come. Now hold on to that. Verse six, for the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of the chariot and the horses, the sound of a great army, 
so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight, abandoning their tents and their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, fleeing for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went in to a tent and ate and drank. And then they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off the things from it and went and hid them. You see, Yahweh brings reversal here by acting as trickster. He tricks the Syrians. They hear what they think is a sound of horses and chariots, a sound that we're told that the Lord made and they heard. The the Lord who commands the breath of the wind blows this sound and the Syrians fear and they're driven from the camp. And in this way, the Lord delivers his people Israel. The lepers leaving the city expecting to find a full camp to their surprise find an empty one. They enter this camp, they eat, they drink, they carry off spoil. Notice there's even a, live, a bunch of alive donkeys in the camp. Like it's a funny sight. They, they haven't eaten all the donkeys. Now what a scene. These outcasts are the first to the party. These social pariahs, thought to be in their condition because of their sin, are the first to see deliverance. Verse 9, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. Evangelion, announcement, good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians. Behold, there was no one here to be seen or heard. There, there's nothing but horses tied up and donkeys tied up in the tents as they were. This is the day of good news. They are witnesses. Let us go and tell what we found. So they go and they tell. And they share their plunder. The lepers who are excluded from the city save the city they can't even enter. They're the ones that stumble upon Yahweh's unexpected answer to prayer. Yahweh provides And they become heralds of the good news. Yahweh has delivered us. Yahweh saves. Verse 11. Then the gatekeepers called out and was told them within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we're hungry. Therefore, they've gone outside the camp, hid themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants says, let some of the men take five of, hear this, five of the remaining horses, because all the other horses have been eaten, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, they saw All the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. The leopards heralded good news. The king doesn't believe it. He can't even conceive of a God who tricks his enemies. He only thinks of a God who tricks his own. 
and brings them into the desert to die. I love the terminology, same words as Jesus would use to draw people in. Come and see, come and see what I will do. The king's men go and see and they find. Salvation has come at night. While the people sleep, the sleepless Lord of heaven and earth goes out with the sounds of horses and chariots and frightens the Syrians away. Verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of flying flour the next morning was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Absence gives way to presence. The scarcity of costly donkey heads and doves' dung is no more. Flour and barley, a bull market. And what about the sarcastic hand of the king? Verse 17, Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died. As the man of God had said when he, when the king came down to him, for when the man of God said to the king, two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Reversal. The lepers feast on the high places while the high and the lofty are trampled below. Salvation has come. And, and notice, notice, salvation isn't elevation to a place where economics and food don't matter. Yahweh saves Israel by giving food at an unbelievable price. Like, what do you mean it's basically free? How can this be? How can we be eating? Hear the gospel from 2 Kings. Elisha, the man of God, gives bread to the hungry, and the hungry preach the good news. Salvation here is deliverance, it's restoration, it's abundant life. The salvation brought by Jesus, then, the greater Elisha, is equally restoration of an abundant life on earth and in history. It's equally a promise of life in new heavens and new earth where a table is spread and Jesus is the Lord of the feast. Now friends, as we close here, all cultures create boundaries of who's in and who's out. Even our inclusive Western culture has boundaries. You are only as good as you are similar. All cultures consider some high and others low. But the gospel of King Jesus in our text confounds. Why? Because creature and creator and the wonder of incarnation. You see, this confounding God who makes windows from heaven from a camp of a foreign army by the trickeration of sounds is the same God here who upends the world in the coming of Jesus as a baby. God becomes one of us. This God incarnates flesh and blood. He makes a home with us. This God-man then lives a life we should have lived but couldn't. This one subjects himself not only to this life, but to the pains of it. 
the working with his hands and the buying and selling and living among a people that creates boundaries of who's in and who's out. He, he doesn't float above the cares of this world, but enters into them. He enters into the struggles of mothers who don't know where to turn. He enters into the hunger of real human beings. He, he enters into the economies of occupying armies. He, he enters into the buying and the selling and the injustices of the markets. He enters into the life of the sick and the outcast. He feasts with sinners and outsiders. And then he dies for it. Subjecting himself into the death on a cross. And when he dies for it, he dies for, for all our shady deals. He dies for all our selfishness. For all the ways we give out death and cannibalize our children, whether through violence Guns, in the womb, technological advancement, body glorification, body mutilization. This Jesus goes to the cross for all that evil. And God the Father undoes the devil, the powers, the systems, tracking them during the twilight of those three hours on the cross, later in the dark night of three nights in the tomb. Here Jesus goes to the place of the dead like the lepers and later Israel. He plunders the devil's lair. And when light comes out on Easter morning, the grave clothes are folded and neatly laid aside. And those outcast disciples who fled show up at the tomb And these men and women later become the ones who share the good news that Jesus is alive and resurrected. This is reversal. The cross is the punctuating moment of reversal where God's law and gospel meet, where the good guy becomes the bad guy and the bad guys, all of us, walk away free. It's easy for us to theorize this But the most beautiful thing about a living Christ is these moments of reversal happen today in very personal ways. Whenever the gospel's heard, we're brought again to ground zero. This is the gospel's aha moment. This is what renewal sounds like. When when we suddenly look strange to ourselves, whenever it's communicated, our faith is found fraudulent. We're hoping in ourselves. Our righteousness is found in that moment to be bankrupt. We did it for all the wrong reasons. Our wisdom is to be found foolish. We were yet again fooling ourselves. These are not one-time blinding conversion moments. It happens every time. Every time the gospel reaches our hearts, every time the good news is preached, it upends our world order. This is because we sinners reboot our self-righteousness and self-assurance every seven seconds or so. Reversal is true. And even in your hearing it this morning, this is what reversal sounds like. It sounds like the gospel. And you're invited into it by your changed life, by your believing, like the lepers, to announce it. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you welcome us, outcast, 
evil as we are, worshiping idols as we do, that you invite us and heal us and restore us, that you feed us. Right here in just a second, we'll take from your table and you will feed us your body and your blood. You will make room for us. And even now, you become for us our bread of life. So I pray this morning as we feast with you and upon you, we will imbibe the good news and become heralds of it. We're thankful, Jesus, that you are our window from heaven. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.